Hey everybody out there in podcast land, this is Chris, the Public Safety Guru, bringing you another lecture in the Season 2 NREMT EMT Lecture Prep Series. Today, we're going to be talking about soft tissue injuries, and this should be Lecture 3 of our Trauma Block Series. But before we jump into this lecture, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor or head on over to our webpage, thepublicsafetyguru.com, for up-to-date information about everything EMT. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, as January 2023 will be starting a monthly newsletter. We also have exclusive content for those that become podcast members or join our Patreon channel, which can be found by searching for the EMT Tutor. There you can find exclusive members-only podcasts, study guides, and tests. And I will tell you, we have recently just uploaded four practice final exams. And what is neat about these final exams is the simple fact that these questions will not only help you with your block exams, they'll definitely help you with your final exam and your preparation for NREMT as these will be the type of questions you will see on that test. All right, enough of that. Let's get on to your learning. Soft tissue injuries. After this lecture and your coursework, the EMT should have an understanding of the types of open and closed soft tissue injuries and how to care for those injuries, including the use of dressing and bandages. You should also have an understanding of the assessment and care of the different types of burns, including thermal, chemical, and electrical burns. All right. We're now going to identify the knowledge domains that the EMT should know in preparation of your block exams as well as national registry. And if you're new to this podcast, knowledge domains are what the national registry says you should know following a lecture to be successful in the testing process as well as an EMT in the field. Knowledge domains. The EMT should be able to describe the anatomy of the skin, including the layers of the skin, as well as the functions of the skin. The EMT student should be able to name the three types of soft tissue injuries and the types of closed soft tissue injuries, as well as the types of open soft tissue injuries. The EMT should be able to explain patient assessment of closed and open injuries and the assessment of closed and open injuries in relation to airway management. The EMT should be able to explain the emergency medical care for closed and open injuries and explain that emergency medical care for patients with an open wound to the abdomen. The EMT should be able to explain the emergency medical care for an impaled object as well as the medical care for neck injuries. The EMT should be able to describe the steps of emergency treatment of small animal bites human bites, and rabies. The student should be able to, the EMT should be able to explain the seriousness of a burn as it relates to the depth and extent. You should be able to define superficial, partial thickness, and full thickness burns, including the characteristics of each burn. You should be able to explain the primary assessment of a burn patient and describe the emergency management of chemical, electrical, thermal, inhalation, and radiation burns. And last, know the functions of sterile dressing and bandages. I know that sounds like a lot, but you're going to see we're going to break this down into little chunks. 
so you can wrap your head around this lecture. If you're taking down notes, label this first section introduction. Okay, soft tissue injuries. Soft tissue injuries are common. They can be as simple as a cut or scrape. They can be as serious as a life-threatening internal injury. Do not become distracted by dramatic open wounds. Do not make the critical mistake of neglecting other life-threatening conditions such as airway obstruction. The soft tissues of the body can be injured through a variety of mechanisms. A blunt injury occurs when the energy exchange between the patient and an object is more than the tissue can tolerate. A penetrating injury occurs when an object breaks through the skin and enters the body. Now, barrow trauma, or barrow trauma, depending on who your instructor is, spelled B-A-R-O trauma, commonly, this is commonly seen in blast injury victims. It refers to the injuries that result from sudden or extreme changes in air pressures. Burns may also result in soft tissue injuries. Now, soft tissue trauma is a common form of injury. Open wounds account for approximately 4.1 million emergency department visits. Wound care is one of the most frequent performed procedures in the emergency room across the United States. Most of these injuries require basic interventions such as wound irrigation, dressing, bandaging, and limited suturing. Death is often related to hemorrhage or infection. Now, uncontrolled hemorrhage can lead to shock and death. When the skin barrier is breached, evading pathogens can cause local or systemic infections. Infections can be life or limb threatening, especially in children, older adults, and people with diabetes or other conditions that may compromise the immune system. Soft tissue injuries and their complications can often be prevented by using simple protective actions. Effective strategies to reduce injury and death from burns are smoke alarms, controlling the temperature of hot water heaters, and enforcing building codes that regulate electrical and construction practices. All right, we're gonna be moving on to the next category and that will be the anatomy and physiology of the skin. The skin is the body's first line of defense against external forces and infection. It is the largest organ in the body. While it's relatively tough, it is still susceptible to injury. Injuries range from simple bruises and abrasions to serious lacerations and amputations. Injuries may expose blood vessels, nerves, and bones. In all instances, the EMT must control bleeding, prevent further contamination to decrease the risk of infection, protect wounds from further damage, apply dressing and bandages to various parts of the patient's body. Now skin varies in thickness depending on the person's age and the skin's location. Skin is thinner in the very young and the very old. Skin is thinner on the eyelids, lips, and ears than on the scalp, back, and soles of the feet. Thin skin is more easily damaged than thick skin. The skin has two principal layers, the epidermis 
and dermis. The epidermis is the tough external layer that forms a watertight covering for the body. The epidermis is composed of several layers. Now the dermis is the inner layer of the skin. It contains hair follicles, sweat glands, and sebaceous glands. Blood vessels in the dermis provide the skin with nutrients and oxygen. Now skin covers all the external surfaces of the body. The various openings in the body are lined with mucous membranes. Mucous membranes provide a protective barrier against bacterial invasion. They secrete a watery substance that lubricates the openings. They are moist, whereas skin is generally dry. Now, in regards to the physiology of the skin, skin serves many functions. It keeps pathogens out, keeps fluids in, regulates body temperature, and the nerves in the skin report to the brain on the environment and many sensations. The nerve pathway connection allows the body to adapt to the environment through responses in the skin and the surrounding tissues. Any break in the skin may allow bacteria to enter and increase the possibility of infection, fluid loss, and the loss of temperature control. Any of these conditions can cause serious illness and even death. There are three types of soft tissue injuries. They are closed injuries, open injuries, and burns. Closed injuries are when damage occurs beneath the skin or mucous membranes. The surface of the skin or mucous membranes remains intact. Now in open injuries, there is a break in the surface of the skin or the mucous membrane. This break exposes deeper tissues to contamination. And then last, we have burns. Burns are when the tissue is damaged by either thermal heat, frictional heat, toxic chemicals, electricity, or nuclear radiation. Okay, we're now going to switch gears and talk about the pathophysiology of closed and open injuries. Now in this category, I would label this pathophysiology. Now the healing of wounds is a natural process that involves several overlapping stages, all directed toward the larger goal of maintaining homeostasis. And don't forget homeostasis is the body having a balance with itself. Cessation of bleeding is the primary concern. Loss of blood hinders the provision of vital nutrients and oxygen to the affected area. It also impairs the tissue's ability to eliminate waste. The end result is abnormal or absent function, which interferes with homeostasis. Now the next wound healing stage is inflammation. Now inflammation is all about the cells moving around to repair the actual area and fight off infection. In this stage, additional cells moved into the damaged area to begin repair. White blood cells migrate to the area to combat pathogens that have invaded the exposed tissue. Lymphocytes destroy bacteria and other pathogens. Mast cells release histamines. 
Inflammation ultimately leads to the removal of foreign material, damaged cellular parts, and invading microorganisms. Now the next stage, to replace the area damaged in a soft tissue injury, a new layer of cells must be moved into this region. Cells quickly multiply and redevelop across the edges of the wound. Except in cases of clean incisions, the appearance of the restructured area seldom returns to the pre-injury state. In other words, we will see a scar. Despite the changed appearance, the function of the area may be restored to near normal. Now, new blood vessels form as the body attempts to bring oxygen and nutrients to the injured tissue. So in the previous stage, we have cells migrating to this area to rebuild new skin. But that new skin needs a new blood supply. So this is what this stage is doing. New capillary buds will form from intact capillaries that lie adjacent to the damaged skin. These vessels provide a channel for oxygen and nutrients and serve as a pathway for waste removal. Now in the last stage of healing, collagen will be introduced into this area. Collagen provides stability to the damaged tissue and joins wound borders, thereby closing the open tissue. Collagen is a tough, fibrous protein found in scar tissue, hair, bones, and connective tissue. Collagen cannot restore the damaged tissue to its original strength. Now let's talk a little bit about closed injuries. Closed soft tissue injuries are characterized by a history of blunt trauma, pain at the site of an injury, swelling beneath the skin, and discoloration. Now, a contusion, aka bruise, is an injury that causes bleeding beneath the skin but does not break the skin. Contusions result from blunt forces striking the body. The epidermis remains intact, but cells within the dermis are damaged and small blood vessels are usually torn. The buildup of blood produces a characteristic blue or black discoloration called ecchymosis. A hematoma is blood that is collected within damaged tissue or in a body cavity. It occurs whenever a large blood vessel is damaged and bleeds rapidly. It is usually associated with extensive tissue damage. And this is what you would call a bump. Now, a crushing injury. A crushing injury occurs when significant force is applied to the body. The extent of the damage depends on how much force is applied and the amount of time that that force is applied. Continued compression of the soft tissue will cut off circulation, producing further tissue destruction. And we see these type of injuries with collapsed buildings. When an area of the body is trapped for longer than four hours and interior blood flow is compromised, crush syndrome can develop. And once again, these are with buildings that have collapsed on people or a vehicle on top of someone. 
this is when you will see that crush syndrome injuries. When a patient's tissues are crushed beyond repair, muscle cells die and release harmful substances into the surrounding tissue. Harmful substances are released into the body's circulation after the limb is freed and blood flow is returned. Advanced life support providers should administer IV fluid before the crushing object is lifted off the body. Freeing the body part from entrapment also creates the potential for cardiac arrest and renal failure. Consider requesting ALS assistance for situations of prolonged entrapment prior to extrication. Now you may think to yourself, well, I'm just an EMT and ALS may be there. Well, no. For example, if you're in the state of California, we know that the big earthquake is coming. We don't have enough paramedics to deal with that type of situation where we have collapsed buildings throughout major metropolitan areas. So you as an EMT may be on a rescue team and come across somebody who is currently trapped underneath debris with this possible syndrome. So just think that in the back of your mind. Now we have another injury associated with this, compartment syndrome. Compartment syndrome develops when edemia and swelling result in increased pressure within a closed soft tissue compartment. Now pressure increases within the compartment which interferes with circulation. Delivery of nutrients and oxygen is impaired and byproducts of normal metabolism accumulate. There is pain, especially on passive movement. The longer this situation persists, the greater chance for tissue death. EMTs must continually reassess skin color, temperature, and pulses distal to the injury site if crush injury is suspected. Now, severe closed injuries can damage internal organs. The greater the amount of energy absorbed from the blunt trauma, the greater the risk of injury to deeper structures. You must assess all patients with closed injuries for more serious hidden injuries. All right, now let's talk a little bit about open injuries. Open injuries differ from closed injuries in that the protective layer of the skin is damaged. These injuries can produce extensive bleeding. A break in the protective skin layer or mucous membrane means that the wound is contaminated and may become infected. Did you hear that? It means that the wound is contaminated. So yes, you should always think that open wounds have some type of bacteria that will infect the wound. Now, contamination. This is the presence of infectious organisms or foreign bodies such as dirt, gravel, or metal in the wound. Address both excessive bleeding and contamination in your treatment of open soft tissue wounds. There are four types of open soft tissue wounds and you probably are fully aware of these but let's just go over them. There are abrasions, lacerations, avulsions and penetrating wounds. Now an abrasion, an abrasion is a wound of the superficial layer of the skin caused by friction when a body part rubs or scrapes across a rough or hard surface. An abrasion usually does not penetrate completely through the dermis but blood may ooze from the injured capillaries in the dermis. 
Examples of abrasions are road rash, road burn, or a rug burn. Now abrasions can be extremely painful because the nerve endings are located in this area. Let's talk a little bit about lacerations now. A laceration is a jagged cut caused by a sharp object or a blunt force that tears the tissue. Under this category, we have an incision. An incision is a sharp, smooth cut. Now, regardless if you have a laceration or an incision, the depth of the injury can vary. Lacerations and incisions may appear linear or stalate. Stalate is best described as a radiating pattern like that of a star. Now, lacerations or incisions that involve arteries or large veins may result in severe bleeding. The next one we have is an avulsion. An avulsion separates various layers of soft tissue so that they become either completely detached or hang as a flap. Now, there's often significant bleeding associated with avulsions. Never remove an avulsion flap regardless of its size. Now, under this category are amputations, even though an amputation is a complete separation of a body part, but this is how they have it categorized. Once again, an amputation is an injury in which part of the body is completely severed. You can easily control the bleeding from some amputations, such as the fingers, with direct pressure and pressure dressings. If there is massive bleeding, you should stop the bleeding, which often requires a tourniquet, and treat the patient for hypovolemic shock. Now in our next injury, we have the penetrating wound. A penetrating wound is an injury resulting from a piercing object such as a knife, ice pick, or bullet. These objects can damage structures deep within the body and cause unseen bleeding. If the wound is to the chest or abdomen, the injury can cause rapid fatal bleeding. Now we have impaled objects. Impelled objects are objects that penetrate the skin but remain in place. There are concerns with these types of injuries. There could be damage to the structures deep inside the body, and there could be a presence of foreign materials inside the tissue that can lead to infection. Stabbings and shootings often result in multiple penetrating injuries. Assess the patient carefully to identify all wounds. Count the number of penetrating injuries, especially with gunshot wounds. Leave the distinction between entrance and exit to the physician. In a shooting, determine the type of gun when possible, but do not let this delay patient transport. Sometimes patients or bystanders can tell you how many rounds were fired, but given the stress of the environment, their information may be unreliable. In these situations or calls, you may have to testify in court. So carefully document the circumstances surrounding the gunshot injury, the patient's condition, and the treatment you give. Now last, we have blast injuries. Blast injuries often result in multiple penetrating injuries. The mechanism of injury from a blast injury is usually due to three factors. The primary blast injury, the secondary blast injury, and the tertiary blast injury. Now in the primary blast injury, damage is caused by the blast wave itself and the sudden pressure changes of the explosion. In the secondary blast injury, well, damage results from flying debris that causes multiple penetrating wounds. And then in the tertiary blast injury, which is spelled 
T-E-R-T-I-A-R-Y, the victim is thrown by the explosion, perhaps, possibly, into an object. All right, that is it for that category. We're now going to talk about the patient assessment of closed and open injuries. Okay, before we jump into this area, let's go ahead and take that break as we've been going strong for a little over 20 minutes. So hit the recorder off, tape player. Okay, I'm really dating myself. All right, just pause, go get something to drink, clear your head as we jump into our next category. All right, welcome back everybody. Patient assessment of closed and open injuries. It is more difficult to assess a closed injury than to assess an open injury. Anytime you observe bruising, swelling, or deformity, or if the patient is reporting pain, the possibility of a closed injury should be considered. An open injury is easier to assess because you can see the injury. Now let's talk a little bit about scene size up. Scene safety. Observe the scene for hazards to your crew, bystanders, and the patient. Ensure that the scene is safe and consider the need for additional resources. Take the necessary standard precautions before approaching the scene. A minimum of gloves and eye protection should be utilized. Open soft tissue injuries can be messy but should not take priority over more serious life-threatening injuries. Be careful where you put your hands, place your equipment, and how you package the patient for transport. Focus on control the bleeding. Now under mechanism of injury, aka MOI, look for indicators of the MOI as you assess the scene. They can help you develop an early index of suspicion for underlying injuries. Interactions with the patient and your assessment will provide you with the additional information about the extent of the injuries. The MOI may provide information about potential safety threats. Use all available information to evaluate scene safety and consider whether additional resources may be necessary. Now under primary assessment, focus on identifying and managing life-threatening concerns and identifying transport priority. Form a general impression. Important indicators will alert you to the seriousness of a patient's condition. Those are, is the patient awake and interacting with his or her surroundings, or is the patient lying still making no sounds? Is the patient responding to you appropriately or inappropriately? Is the patient breathing pattern rapid, slow, deep, or shallow? What is the color and condition of the patient's skin? Does the patient have any apparent life threats? Now, closed soft tissue injuries may appear to be minor, but could indicate serious internal injuries. Do not be distracted from looking for more serious hidden injuries. Check for responsiveness. If the patient is alert, ask about the chief complaint. Administer high flow oxygen via a non-rebreather mask to patients whose level of consciousness is less than alert. Treat for potential shock and provide immediate transport. One more time. Administer high flow O2 via a non-rebreather mask for those patients whose level of consciousness is less than alert. Always treat for potential shock and provide for immediate transport. 
If the patient has significant trauma, perform a rapid exam, look for live threats, and treat them as you find them. If the patient has obvious life-threatening external bleeding, control the bleeding first, even before airway and breathing, then assess and treat the ABCs and provide treatment for shock. So you gotta wrap your head around this, ladies and gentlemen. If you find life-threatening external bleeding, control that bleeding, regardless if the patient has an airway, regardless if the patient is not breathing. So remember that for testing purposes. Now under airway and breathing, provide high flow O2 may help reduce the effects of shock and assist in perfusion of damaged tissues, particularly in crushing injuries. Ensure that the patient has a clear and patent airway. Protect the patient from further spinal injury by preventing the head and torso from moving. Assess the patient for adequate breathing. Inspect and palpate the chest wall for DCAP BTLS. Open soft tissue injuries of the face and neck have a potential to interfere with the effectiveness of the airway and breathing. Evaluate the patient's voice and speaking ability. If an open injury is found on the chest, evaluate for air movement at the injury site. This could be an indicator for a deep penetrating injury. Assess the patient's back for injuries that might need treatment. Now, talking about circulation. Quickly assess the patient's pulse rate, rhythm, and quality. Determine the skin condition, color, and temperature. Check the capillary refill time. Your assessment of the pulse and skin will give you an indication as to how aggressively you need to treat the patient for shock. Transport decision. Consider whether transport to the closest hospital is appropriate or whether the patient will be better served by transport to a trauma center. Types of patients who may need immediate transportation include poor initial general impression, altered level of consciousness, dyspnea, abnormal vital signs, shock, and severe pain. Patients who have visible significant bleeding or signs of significant internal bleeding may quickly become unstable. All right, let's talk a little bit about history taking now. Investigate the chief complaint. Obtain a medical history and be alert for injury-specific signs and symptoms and any pertinent negatives. Obtain a sample history from your patient. Using OPQRST may provide some background on isolated extremity injuries. When you use sample OPQRST and DCAP BTLS together, your assessment will provide significant insight into the patient's condition. Any information you receive will be very valuable if the patient loses consciousness. If the patient is unresponsive, attempt to obtain the history from other sources, such as friends or family members, bystanders, medical identification jewelry, cards and wallets. Now, typical signs of an open injury include bleeding, breaks in the skin, shock, hemorrhage, disfigurement or loss of a body part, Chronic medical conditions such as anemia and hemophilia, as well as a host of other medical conditions, can complicate open soft tissue injuries. Secondary assessment. After you evaluate ABCs and identify and treat immediate life threats, a more detailed assessment should follow. 
The secondary assessment is a more systematic full body scan or focus examination of the patient. The secondary assessment, which includes assessing interventions and repeating vital signs, typically occurs en route to the emergency room. Now, under the physical examination, listen to breath sounds with a stethoscope. Determine the patient's respiratory rate. Note the pattern and quality of respiratory effort. Assess for asymmetric chest wall movement. Assess the neurological system, which includes level of consciousness, pupil size and reactivity, motor response, and sensory response. Assess for muscle skeletal system by performing a detailed exam of the entire body. Look for DCAP BTLS. Assess the chest, abdomen, and extremities for hidden bleeding and injuries. Log roll the patient and assess the posterior torso for injuries. Once the back has been assessed, perform a complete spinal immobilization if indicated. Assess all anatomic regions. Check for jugular vein distension and tracheal deviation. Check the pelvis for stability. Check the abdomen and check the extremities and record the pulse, motor, and sensory function. Now under vital signs, reassess the vital signs to identify how quickly the patient's condition is changing. Signs that indicate hypoperfusion, aka shock, indicate the need for rapid transport. And what do those include? Well, tachycardia, tachypnea, low blood pressure, a weak pulse, and cool, moist, and pale skin. Reassessment of the patient's vital signs will indicate how well the patient is tolerating the injury and the effectiveness of your interventions. Now under reassessment, reassessment should be conducted regularly during transport. Repeat the primary assessment and pay extra attention to areas of concern identified in the initial assessment. Assess the effectiveness of prior treatments. Reassess vital signs and the chief complaint. Recheck patient interventions. Reassess the effectiveness of the bandaging. Identify and treat changes in the patient's conditions. Interventions. Assess and manage all threats to the patient's airway, breathing, and circulation. Give supplemental O2 via a non-rebreather mask to all patients with traumatic injuries impacting the airway or ventilation or those with a potential for shock. Expose all wounds, control bleeding, and be prepared to treat the patient for shock. Consider flushing small wound surfaces without significant bleeding with sterile saline prior to applying a dressing. If any material is stuck in the wound, do not remove it, as this may worsen bleeding and shock. Splint extremities that are painful, swollen, or deformed. That is it. Now we can talk a little bit about communication and documentation as it may appear on National Registry. Your communication and documentation must include a description of the MOI and the position in which you found the patient when you arrived on scene. Attempt to report blood loss using terms that you are comfortable with and that will be easily understood by other personnel. Include the location and description of any soft tissue injuries or other wounds you have located and treated. 
describe the size and depth of the injury and provide an accurate account of how you treated those injuries. And that is it under this category. We're now going to move on and talk about the emergency medical care for closed injuries. Small contusions generally require no special emergency medical care, but you should note their presence to determine the extent of the patient's injuries. More extensive closed injuries may involve significant swelling and bleeding beneath the skin, which could lead to hypovolemic shock. Injuries might not have had time to cause swelling or bruising. Closely watch any area of injury throughout the time you are caring for the patient no matter how minor it may look upon initial assessment. Treat a closed soft tissue injury using the RICES mnemonic. That is R-I-C-E-S. If you're not familiar with that, let's go over it. R stands for rest, I for ice, C for compression, E for elevation, and S for splinting. One more time. Rest, ice, compression, evaluation, and splinting. Now be alert for signs of developing shock and those could include anxiety or agitation, changes in mental status, increased heart rate, increased respiratory rate, diaphoresis aka sweating, and cold or clammy skin as well as a decreased blood pressure. If the patient exhibits signs and symptoms of shock, treat accordingly and aggressively. And that is it for closed injuries. We're now going to talk about the emergency medical care for, guess what, open injuries. Before you begin to care for a patient with an open wound, follow standard precautions. If life-threatening bleeding is observed, assign a team member to apply direct pressure over the wound to control bleeding. If the wound is in the chest, if the wound is in the chest, upper abdomen, or upper back, Cover it with an inclusive dressing. Control bleeding using direct even pressure and elevation. Pressure dressings and or splints should be utilized if indicated and as a last resort tourniquets. All open wounds are assumed to be contaminated and present a risk of infection. Applying a sterile dressing reduces the risk of further contamination. Do not remove material from an open wound no matter how dirty the wound is. Small wound surfaces without significant bleeding can be flushed with sterile saline prior to applying a dressing. In most circumstances, hospital personnel rather than EMTs will clean up open wounds. In some cases, you can better control bleeding from open soft tissue wounds by splinting the extremity even if there is no fracture. Now talking about abdominal wounds, an open wound in the abdominal cavity may expose internal organs. In an evisceration, the organs protrude through the wound. Cover the wound with sterile gauze moistened with sterile saline solution. Secure the gauze with an inclusive dressing and keep the organs moist and warm. Most patients with abdominal wounds require immediate transport to a trauma center. Now let's just say you have a patient with an impaled object. Occasionally a patient will have an object such as a knife, a stick, something that has pierced their body. To treat the injury, you must stabilize the object with bulky dressing. 
and there are or I should say there is really no science behind this because every object will be different but you need to stabilize that object so it doesn't do further damage and remember we never remove an impaled object unless these two situations apply to your patient the first one is if the object is through and through the cheek or mouth and obstructs the airway the theory behind this is that number one you could see what the other side looks like so pulling it out you're going to know if you're going to increase or potentially harm the patient further and then it also deals with the airway the second time or i should say the second situation is if your patient requires cpr and the object is in the chest directly where you would perform that CPR. These are the two instances where you can remove an impaled object. Now, if the object is very long, secure it in the position that it's been found and then shorten it. Normally, you're gonna to have to utilize the fire department to assist you with this as they have the tools necessary to do this and then provide rapid transport. Now, with neck injuries, Open neck injuries can be life-threatening. If the veins of the neck are open to the environment, they may suck in air. If enough air is sucked into a blood vessel, it can block the flow of blood in the lungs and cause cardiac arrest. This condition is called an air embolism. Cover the wound with an occlusive dressing. Apply manual pressure, but do not compress both carotid arteries at the same time. This could impair circulation to the brain and cause a stroke. Use caution with patients suffering from a neck injury depending on the mechanism of injury involved. Immobilize the C-spine if indicated, including placing a cervical collar. Now let's shift gears and talk a little bit about bites. Small animal bites and rabies. Consider the scene and crew safety prior to entering the environment. A small animal's mouth is heavily contaminated with virulent bacteria. Consider all small animal bites to be contaminated and potentially infected wounds. Treatment may require debridement, which is removal of damaged tissue done in the hospital, antibiotics, a tetanus shot, and possible surgical repair. All small animal bites should be evaluated by a physician. A major concern is the spread of rabies. This is an acute, potentially fatal viral infection of the central nervous system that can affect all warm-blooded animals. The virus is in the saliva of a rapid, rabid or infected animal and is transmitted through biting or licking an open wound. Infection can be prevented only by a series of special vaccine injections. Children, particularly young ones, may be seriously injured or even killed by dogs the animal may turn and attack you as well. Do not enter the scene until the animal has been secured by the police or an animal control officer. Now let's talk about those dreaded human bites. The human mouth, more so than ever the small animal's mouth, contains an exceptionally wide range of bacteria and viruses. Regard any human bite that has penetrated the skin as a very serious injury. Any laceration caused by a human tooth can result in a serious spreading infection. Emergency treatment consists of the following steps. Apply a dry, sterile dressing. Promptly immobilize the area with a splint or bandage. 
and provide transport to the emergency room for surgical cleansing of the wound and antibiotic therapy. In my travels as a paramedic, I've always been told by doctors that a human bite is far worse than an animal bite. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have been going strong for another 20 plus minutes. So this would be the perfect time to jump into another break before we jump into burns and the treatment for burns. All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Burns account for approximately 3,400 deaths per year. Burns are among the most serious and painful of all injuries. A burn occurs when the body or a body part receives more radiant energy than it can absorb, resulting in an injury. Potential sources of this energy are heat, toxic chemicals, and electricity. Although a burn may be the patient's most obvious injury, you should always perform a complete assessment to determine whether other serious injuries are present. Children, older patients, and patients with chronic illnesses are more likely to experience shock from burn injuries. Now let's talk about the pathophysiology of burns. Burns are soft tissue injuries that are spread out over a large area and are created by the transfer of radiation, thermal, or electrical energy. Thermal burns can occur when skin is exposed to temperatures higher than 111 Fahrenheit or 44 Celsius. The severity of a thermal injury correlates directly with A. Temperature B. Concentration C. The amount of heat energy possessed by the object or substance and D. Duration of exposure. Burn injuries are progressive. The greater the heat injury, the deeper the wound. People naturally limit the amount of time they are exposed to such heat. If clothing is on fire or the person is trapped or unconscious, exposure time can be extended. Now there are various different complications associated with burns. The skin serves as a barrier between the environment and the body. When a person is burned, this barrier is destroyed. Burns create a high risk of infection, hypothermia, and hypovolemia, as well as shock. Burns to the airway are of significant importance because the loose mucosa in the hypopharynx can swell and lead to complete airway obstruction. Let me break that down. So basically, the heat will cause the mucosa to swell up and close the airway. It's a simpler way of saying it. Circumferential burns of the chest can compromise breathing. Circumferential burns of an extremity can lead to compartment syndrome, resulting in neurovascular compromise and irreversible damage if not appropriately treated. If you suspect any complications, call for ALS backup. Let's go back and talk a little bit about circumferential. Circumferential essentially means going around the outside edge of a round or curved area, object, organ, or body part. So it's going around it. It's covering the whole area. So when we talk about burns, especially when we just mentioned the chest, think of it going around the chest and hence the reason why that would cause possible complications with breathing. Now a little bit about burn severity. There are five factors to help you determine the severity of the burn. Now the first two factors are the most important. First, what is the depth of the burn? Second, what is the extent of the burn? 
The third factor is, are any of the areas a critical area? Now, critical areas include the face, upper airway, hands, feet, and genitalia. Now, the fourth factor is, does the patient have any pre-existing medical conditions or other injuries? And the fifth factor is, is the patient younger than five years or older than 55 years? Now, burns to the face are of particular importance and do <clears throat> burns to the face of <clears throat> burns to the face are of particular importance because of the potential of airway involvement. Burns to the hands or feet or over joints are considered serious because of the potential for loss of function as the result of scarring. Now, depth of burns. This is where we get into first degree, second degree, and third degree. So first degree is otherwise known as a superficial burn. It involves only the top layer of skin, which is called the epidermis. The skin turns red, but does not blister or burn through this top layer. The burn site is often painful. An example of this is the common sunburn. Now let's talk about the partial thickness burn, AKA a second degree. This burn involves the epidermis and some portion of the dermis. These burns do not destroy the entire thickness of the skin, nor is the subcutaneous tissue injured. Typically the skin is moist, mottled, and white to red, and blisters are present, and the patient will be in intense pain. Now the worst burn is the third degree burn, AKA the full thickness burn. This burn extends through all skin layers and may involve subcutaneous layers, muscle, bone, and internal organs. The burn area is dry and leathery and may appear white, dark brown, or even charred. If the nerve endings have been destroyed, a severely burned area may have no feeling. The surrounding less severely burned areas may be extremely painful. Now significant airway burns are serious. They may be associated with singed hair within the nostrils, suit around the nose and mouth, hoarseness and hypoxia. These patients should be rapidly transported to the emergency room or facility capable of advanced airway management. Now, I am sure that you have heard that patients have been 32% burned, 50% burned, and you might have wondered, well, how do they calculate that? Well, there are two rules that we can utilize in EMS to estimate the surface area that has been burned of our patients. The first rule is the rule of palm. The rule of palm estimates a surface area that has been burned by comparing it to the size of the patient's palm, which is roughly equal to 1% of the patient's total body surface area. Now the rule of nines, this is the more common one that I find that we utilize in EMS. Now in the rule of nines, we estimate the extent of the burn by dividing the body into sections, each representing approximately 9% of the total body surface. Now this will definitely change with our patients who are infants and children refer to the charts that are given to you in your course. Now, when you calculate the extent of a burn injury, include only partial and full thickness burns. 
document first degree burns, but they should not be part of your calculation when trying to determine the surface area that a patient has suffered from a burn. Okay, we're now going to jump into the patient assessment of burns. When assessing a burn, it is important to classify the patient's burns. Classification of burns is based on source of the burn, depth of the burn, and severity of the burn. One more time. Classification of burns is based on source of the burn, depth of the burn, and the severity of the burn. All right, now let's talk about scene size up. Under scene safety, observe the scene for hazards and threats to the safety of you and your crew, bystanders, and the patient. Ensure that the factors that led to the patient's burn injury do not pose a hazard to you and your crew. Now under a mechanism of injury, attempt to determine the type of burn that has been sustained and the MOI. What the patient reports will often provide important information about the extent of the injury. Assess the scene for any environmental hazards, determine the number of patients, and call for additional resources early if necessary. You should consider the potential for spinal injuries, broken bones, inhalation injuries, and other injuries. Primary assessment. Begin with a rapid exam. Form a general impression. Look for clues to determine the severity of injuries and the need for rapid treatment. Be suspicious of clues that may indicate abuse. Consider the need for manual spinal immobilization and check for responsiveness using the AVPU scale. In all patients whose level of consciousness is less than alert and oriented, administer high flow oxygen via a non-rebreather mask and provide immediate transport. Now under airway and breathing, ensure that the patient has a clear and patent airway. Be alert to signs that the patient has inhaled hot gases or vapors. Look for singed facial hair or is there any suit present in or around the airway? Now there could be heavy amounts of secretions and frequent coughing which may indicate a respiratory burn. Quickly assess for adequate breathing and inspect and palpate the chest wall for DCAP BTLS. Now under circulation, quickly assess the pulse rate and quality. Determine perfusion based on the patient's skin condition, color, temperature, and capillary refill time. Take steps to control significant bleeding. If the patient has obvious life-threatening external hemorrhaging, control the bleeding first. This is done before airway and breathing. Remember, we always control that major hemorrhage first. Then we treat the patient for shock as quickly as possible. Treat shock in burn patients by preventing heat loss and cover the patient with a blanket. Now as far as your transport decision, consider rapid transport for a patient who has A, an airway or breathing problem, B, a significant burn injury, C, significant external bleeding, D, signs and symptoms of internal bleeding. If necessary, get ALS responding to your location. Under history taking, Investigate the chief complaint. Be alert for signs or symptoms of other injuries due to the MOI. If the patient was burned in a confined space, suspect an inhalation injury. 
When burns result from explosive forces, be alert for other internal injuries and fractures. Obtain a medical history and be alert for injury-specific signs and symptoms and pertinent negatives. Typical signs of a burn include pain, redness, swelling, blisters, and charring. Symptoms may include pain or burning at the injury site. Now, regardless of the type of burn injury, first stop the burning process. Apply a dressing to prevent contamination and treat the patient for shock. Along with the sample history, ask the following questions. Are you having any difficulty breathing? Are you having any difficulty swallowing? Are you having any pain? Check whether the patient has an emergency medical identification device. All right, let's move on to the secondary assessment. Okay, under the physical examination, you're going to perform an exam of the entire body. Assess the patient from head to toe looking for DCAP BTLS. Make a rough estimate using the rule of nines of the extent of the burn area. Determine the classification of the burns that the victim has sustained. Determine the severity of the burns. Package the patient for transport based on your findings. Assessment of the respiratory system involves looking, listening, and feeling. Look for suit around the mouth, suit around the nose, or singe nasal hairs. If any of those findings are present, open the patient's mouth and examine for burns or swelling of the tongue. Ask the patient to cough and assess for black sputum, which indicates smoke inhalation. Listen to breath sounds with a stethoscope. Assess pulse rate and quality. Determine the skin condition, color, and temperature, and check for capillary refill time. Assess the patient's neurological system. Check their level of consciousness using AVPU. Check the pupil size and reactivity. Determine motor response and sensory response. You're going to also assess the musculoskeletal system. In the head, check for singed nasal or facial hair, burns or swelling of the face or ears, or burns or swelling in the mouth. In the case of an electrical injury, examine the scalp for entrance or exit wounds. In the neck, check for burns, especially if they encircle the entire neck, which can impair circulation. In the chest, check for burns that encircle the entire chest, which can impair normal chest rise. In the abdomen and pelvis, fill all four quadrants for tenderness or rigidity. If the abdomen is tender, expect internal bleeding. Look for burns of the genitalia as burns to this area are considered high risk. Look for burns that encircle an extremity as they can impair circulation. If the patient sustained an electrical injury, assess thoroughly for entrance and exit burned wounds. Record pulse and motor and sensory function. Examine the posterior surface of the body as large burns or electrical exit burns may be located in this body area. Vital signs. Determining an early set of vital signs will help you to know how the patient is tolerating his or her injuries. Blood pressure, pulse, and skin assessment for perfusion are important signs to obtain. If you have the monitoring devices available, try to get an O2 saturation, and if you have a carbon monoxide monitor, try to get that as well.
All right, let's talk a little bit about the reassessment now. Repeat the primary assessment and reassess the patient's vital signs. Reassess the patient's chief complaint. Reevaluate interventions and treatments you have provided to the patient. Remember, stop the burning process, assess and treat breathing, support circulation, provide transport, oxygen is mandatory for inhalation burns and large body surface area burns. If the patient has signs of hypoperfusion, aka shock, treat aggressively and provide rapid transport. Now, as far as communication and documentation, provide hospital personnel with a description of how the burn occurred and describe the extent of the burns, which include the amount of body surface area involved, the depth of the burn, and location of the burn. If special areas are involved, they should be specifically mentioned and documented. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's hard to believe, but we have been going 20 minutes since our last break. So let's go ahead and take this third break and clear your head, grab something to drink, because we still have a lot of information to cover. All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're now gonna talk about the emergency medical care for burns. Your responsibility in caring for a patient with a burn is to stop the burning process and prevent additional injury. Let's first discuss the medical care for thermal burns. Now, thermal burns are caused by heat. Most commonly, they are caused by scalds or an open flame. A flame is very often a deep burn, especially if a person's clothing catches fire. A scald burn is most commonly seen in children and handicapped adults, but can happen to anyone, particularly while cooking. Hot liquids produce scald injuries. Scald burns often cover large surface areas of the body because liquids can spread quickly. Coming in contact with hot objects produces a contact burn. Contact burns are rarely deep unless the patient was prevented from drawing away from the hot object. A steam burn can produce a topical scald burn. Minor steam burns are common when microwaving food covered with plastic wrap. Now a flash burn is produced by an explosion, which may briefly expose a person to very intense heat. Lightning strikes can also cause a flash burn. Management of thermal burns. Now, in management of thermal burns, we're gonna stop the burning source, cool the burn area if appropriate, and remove all jewelry. We're gonna maintain a high index of suspicion for inhalation injuries. Increased exposure time will increase damage to the patient. The larger the burn, the more likely the patient will be susceptible to hypothermia and or hypovolemia. All patients with large surface burns should have a dry sterile dressing applied to help. You're going to maintain body temperature, prevent infection, and provide comfort. Now let's switch gears and talk a little bit about inhalation burns. Inhalation injuries can occur when burning takes place in exposed spaces without ventilation. When the upper airway is exposed to excessive heat, the patient can experience rapid and serious airway compromise. Upper airway damage is often associated with the inhalation of superheated gases. Lower airway damage is often associated with the inhalation of chemicals and particulate matter. 
When treating a patient for inhalation injuries, you may encounter severe upper airway swelling, which requires immediate intervention. Consider requesting ALS backup if the patient has signs and symptoms of edemia. The patient may also present with strider, hoarse voice, singed nasal hairs, and burns of the face. There can also be carbon particles in the sputum. In these cases, apply cool mist aerosol therapy or humidified oxygen to help reduce some minor edemia. Apply an ice pack to the throat to reduce swelling provided the tissue in that area does not have burns. The combustion process produces a variety of toxic gases. The less efficient the combustion process, the more toxic the gases that may be created. Now carbon monoxide, and its chemical term is CO, carbon monoxide intoxication should be considered whenever a group of people in the same place all report a headache or nausea. This presents with cherry red skin, lips, and nail beds and are commonly observed in patients who have died from CO exposure. Do not rule out CO exposure simply because the patient's skin is not cherry red. Now, hydrogen cyanide, otherwise known as HCN, is generated by combustion. Signs and symptoms involve the central nervous system, the respiratory system, and the cardiovascular system. Some signs and symptoms can include faintness, anxiety, abnormal vital signs, a headache, seizures, paralysis, and a coma. Now, management of inhalation burns. You must first ensure your own safety and the safety of your co-workers. Pre-hospital treatment of a patient with suspected hydrogen cyanide poisoning includes decontamination and supportive care until an antidote can be administered by ALS providers. Now care for any toxic gas exposure includes recognition, identification, and supportive treatment. Now let's talk about chemical burns. Chemical burns can occur whenever a toxic substance contacts the body. Most chemical burns are caused by strong acids or strong alkalids. The eyes are particularly vulnerable. The severity of the burn is directly related to three factors. One, the type of chemical. Two, concentration of the chemical. And three, duration of the exposure. To prevent exposure to hazardous materials, determine if you can safely approach the patient. In some cases, you must wait until hazardous material, hazmat, has decontaminated the patient. Wear appropriate chemical resistant gloves and eye protection whenever you are caring for a patient with chemical burns. Treatment for chemical burns can be specific to the chemical agent. Now, under management of chemical burns, the severity of the burn will depend on the type of chemical, its strength, duration of exposure, and the area of the body exposed. To stop the burning process, remove any chemical from the patient. Always brush dry chemicals off the skin and clothing before flushing the patient with water. In your class, your instructor may have said, remember, we brush before we flush. And that is one thing to remember. Remove the patient's clothing, including shoes, stockings, gloves, and any other jewelry or eyeglasses. Take care to ensure that you do not come in contact with the chemical. 
the patient should be properly decontaminated by properly trained personnel. For liquid chemicals, immediately begin to flush the burn area with large amounts of water. Continue flooding the area with gallons of water for 15 to 20 minutes after the patient says the burning pain has stopped. If the patient's eyes have been burned, hold the eyelid open. Remember, do not apply any pressure to the globe of the eye. You're going to flood the eye with a gentle stream of water. As with any substance, once the fluid has been contaminated with the chemical, collect it and properly dispose of it. Conduct a proper decontamination prior to loading any patient into the ambulance and again prior to entering a hospital. Alright, electrical burns. Electrical burns may be the result of contact with high or low voltage electricity. High voltage burns may occur when utility workers make direct contact with power lines. Ordinary household current can cause severe burns and cardiac arrhythmias. For electricity to flow, there must be a complete circuit between the electrical source and the ground. An insulator is any substance that prevents this circuit from being completed. So believe it or not, your EMS boots, your firefighter boots, are quote-unquote an insulator, just like tires to a vehicle is an insulator. Now a conductor is any substance that allows a current to flow through it. That would be a wire, or unfortunately, us. The human body is a good conductor. Electrical burns occur when the body or a part of it completes a circuit connecting a power source to the ground. The type of electrical current, magnitude of current, and voltage have effects on the seriousness of the burn. Your safety is of particular importance when you are called to the scene of an emergency involving electricity. You can be fatally injured by coming into contact with power lines. You can be fatally injured by touching a patient who is still in contact with a live power line or any other electrical source. Never attempt to remove anyone from an electrical source unless you are specially trained to do so. Always assume that any downed power line is live. A burn injury appears where the electricity entered and exit the body. There are two dangers specifically associated with electrical burns. First, there may be a large amount of deep tissue injury. Next, the patient may go into cardiac or respiratory arrest from the electrical shock. If the patient is not in cardiac arrest on your arrival, he or she is unlikely to experience this problem during transport. Now, management of electrical burns. Electrical current can cross the chest and cause cardiac arrest or arrhythmias. If indicated, begin CPR on the patient and apply the AED. Be prepared to defibrillate if necessary. Give supplemental oxygen and monitor the patient closely for respiratory and cardiac arrest. Treat the soft tissue injuries by applying dry, sterile dressings on all burn wounds and splinting suspected fractures. Provide prompt transport. Now, in your travels as an EMT, you may respond to law enforcement incidents involving the use of a taser. In recent years, law enforcement has increased its use of tasers. These weapons fire two small darts, aka electrodes, that puncture the patient's skin. Barbs are generally treated as impaled objects and removed by a physician. In some jurisdictions though, depending on local protocol, EMTs are permitted to remove these barbs from a patient. And when we speak about barbs, it's just like a fishing hook. There are potential complications for the patient when these devices have been used. 
particularly when the patient is experiencing certain underlying disorders. Excited delirium is commonly associated with illegal drug ingestion. Excited delirium is a true emergency and warrants assistance from paramedics. Using a taser device in patients with true excited delirium has been previously associated with dysrhythmias and sudden cardiac arrest. Make sure you have access to an AED when you respond to patients who have been exposed to taser shots. All right, that's it. Let's talk a little bit about those radiation burns. Acute radiation exposure has become more than a theoretical issue because the use of radioactive materials has increased in industry and medicine. Potential threats include incidents related to the use and transportation of radioactive isotopes, as well as the intentional release of radioactive material from a terrorist attack. You must determine if there has been any radiation exposure and then attempt to determine whether ongoing exposure continues to exist. Now, there are three types of ionizing radiation. They are alpha, beta, and gamma. And we're going to talk a little bit about all three of those. Alpha radiation. Alpha particles have little penetrating energy, and they are easily stopped by the skin. Now, beta radiation. Beta particles have greater penetrating power and can travel much farther in air than alpha particles. They can also penetrate the skin, but can be blocked by simple protective clothing designed for this purpose. Now, gamma. And we'll probably all remember the gamma, Incredible Hulk, right? Well, the threat from gamma radiation is directly proportional to its wavelength. This type of radiation is very penetrating and easily passes through the body and solid materials. There you go. Now you know how Bruce Banner became the Incredible Hulk. Most ionizing radiation accidents involve gamma radiation, which is common in x-rays. People who have sustained a radiation exposure generally do not pose a risk to others, but in incidents involving explosions, patients may be contaminated. Now, under management of radiation burns, maintain a safe distance and wait for the hazmat team to decontaminate the patient before initiating care. Most contaminants can be removed by simply removing the patient's clothes. Call for additional resources. Once there is no threat to you, begin treating the ABCs and treat the patient for any burns or trauma. Irrigate open wounds. Notify the emergency department of what you have and try to identify the radioactive source and the length of the patient's exposure to it. Limit your duration of exposure, increase your distance from the source, and attempt to place shielding between yourself and the source of gamma radiation. And that is it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, before we end this podcast, we're going to talk about the overall dressing and bandaging of soft tissue injuries. All wounds require bandaging. Splints can help control bleeding and provide firm support for dressing. There are many different types of dressing and bandages. Dressing and bandages have three functions. One, to control bleeding. Two, to prevent the wound from further damage. And last, to prevent further contamination and infection. Let's talk about sterile dressings. Most wounds will be covered by either universal dressings, conventional gauze pads, which come in the size of a 4x4 or 4x8, or assorted small adhesive type dressings and soft self-adherent roller dressings. The universal dressing is ideal for covering large open wounds. Gauze pads are appropriate for smaller wounds. Adhesive type dressings are useful for minor wounds as well. 
Occlusive dressings prevent air and liquids from entering or exiting the wound. They are made of a Vaseline gauze, aluminum foil, or plastic, and they're used to cover sucking chest wounds, abdominal viscerations, penetrating back wounds, and neck injuries. All right, now we're gonna talk about bandages. To keep dressing in place during transport, you can use a soft roller bandage, rolls of gauze, triangular bandages, and or adhesive tape. The self-adherent soft roller bandages are easiest to use. Adhesive tapes hold small dressings in place and help to secure larger dressings. Now, some people are allergic to adhesive tape and with these individuals use paper or plastic tape. Do not use elastic bandages to secure dressings. If the injury swells, the bandage may become a tourniquet and cause further damage. Always check a limb distal to a bandage for signs of impaired circulation and loss of sensation. Air splints and vacuum splints are useful in stabilizing broken extremities and can be used with dressings to help control bleeding from soft tissue injuries. If a wound continues to bleed despite the use of direct pressure, quickly proceed to the use of a tourniquet. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for this lecture. However, before you leave, I have some exciting news. At our website, thepublicsafetyguru.com, I will be adding a folder under Learning Tools offering free samples of our members-only exclusive content. All you have to do is head on over to the website, register for free, and check out what we have to offer. Remember, for the price of a fast food meal, you gain valuable access to exclusive content to aid you in your learning or passing the National Registry exam. Last, don't forget to follow us on Instagram. All right, thank you for listening and happy EMTing.